great friends, fellow evolvers and curious people everywhere. Welcome once again to Being with Sally Wilson. I'm Sally and once again I have as our very, very special guest, Beck Duffield. Welcome back, Beck. Thank you so much. So for those of you who haven't met Beck before, there is a podcast episode um, where Beck takes us through a lot more of her story, but she is um, a yoga teacher and founder of Zero Point Yoga, which is an online community as well as in-person community in Ocean Grove and Drysdale um, in Victoria, Australia. And Beck is my yoga teacher and has a wonderful ability to help us apply yogic concepts in our lives and understand the practicality of it. And we wanted to talk today about the idea of non-attachment. What is it, Beck? Man, it's the <laughs> hardest of the concepts, I think. Um, <laughs> it's a really, really, really tricky concept, but I We'll tell you a story if that's okay. Um, that I've been studying this stuff and like the term non-attachment for 20 something years, right? And karma yoga and all of the things that tie into it. And anyway, really recently, as in in the last month or so, I was just walking and I was listening to a podcast. I can't even remember what it was or what it was about but there was a line in it from a guy named Carl Sagan. I've never heard of Carl Sagan before. I've since found out he's this, um, or he was an astronomer. And anyway, the line from this quote, and they weren't talking about non-attachment in this podcast, but they used this quote from him. And when I heard it, my body literally just stopped walking and I was so still and it was just like these decades of trying to understand non-attachment. It just like this, it just dominoed down into me. And I was like, oh my gosh, with that one interesting quote, I feel like I finally get it. And the quote is, um, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the entire universe, which might just make sense it might make absolutely no sense to anyone but what he's saying basically is if you want to make an apple pie you're going to need an apple tree and you're going to need soil that can grow apples and you're going to need a weather system to support that tree so it gets enough rain and enough sun that it bears fruit that is sweet enough and you're going to need the microbiome in the soil to be perfect and you're going to need farmers to harvest the apple and the same for the wheat and the same for the sugar and the same for whatever other ingredients, the cinnamon, whatever else goes into it. Like there is so much, right? And then you're going to need the ancestry that passed down a recipe that tried and failed and tried and failed and tried and failed. And you're going to need the invention of fire from our ancestors so long ago. And you're going to need the electricians that build an oven. And you're going to need this life that allows you the luxury of time and space to bake an apple pie. And you know, there's so much that's been going on for millennia, for eons before you that contributed to this and you just do this final, tiny, one last little act, right? In maybe the apple tree 
takes 10 years before the fruit is edible and you know the, there's so much behind it and you spend an hour right at the end of centuries and centuries and centuries that have been leading to this and you're like I made an apple pie and it just the ridiculousness of it struck me in that moment I was like how can we think that we are the actors that we are the agents of anything it was it was so funny to me like preposterously funny all of the things that I ever thought that I'd done in that moment listening to that podcast where I'm just stopped on the side of the road having just the biggest aha moments from this quote about an apple pie just literally all of it it made me laugh out loud so I'm like frozen still and laughing out loud because suddenly it was so obvious like why on earth are we attaching to the last two minutes of anything and thinking that that was us? It's <laughs> it's yeah. hysterical. Um, and so whether that resonates with anyone else or not, that to me was the moment where I'm like, oh, my gosh, this we grip and we hold and we identify with this tiny glimpse of the whole thing. And we yeah. think that we did something. Yeah. Um, and just led to this biggest surrender. Like, wow. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Thank you, Beck. And yeah. it's, you know, um, <laughs> that we have spoken about the ego in the past. Mm. And, and it's it's the ego, isn't it? Wanting to claim things give them importance by saying, I did it, it's mine. Um, can you talk us through sort of another side of the same thing, I guess, mm -hmm. is sort of attachment to a sense of attachment to material things or non-attachment and what people's misconceptions are. Because I know that, you know, in different in different traditions, people learn, um, well, it's, it's not right to have money or it's not right to do this or it's not, um, you know, I'm a bad person if I indulge in this or whatever it is. No, we really attach this sense of nobility to austerity mm. and that. And it's just this one of my heroes um, is Osho. I would have absolutely lived in his ashram and if, if people listening don't know who it is trust me that's fine it's a very obscure reference he was this um yogi that he set up um an alternate way of living a commune in america and um, there's a netflix documentary about him actually called wild orange county i think that's what it's called anyway osho had i'm gonna get the number wrong but it was something it was the most ostentatious number like 55 or 99 something rolls royces and travelled in a convoy of Rolls Royces, which was so provocative to people because he's teaching yoga and he's teaching this and he's teaching non-attachment. He's teaching non-attachment and he's driving in a convoy of Rolls Royces and people are completely misunderstanding him and this and people are offended by it and people are gripping to that idea that you said before, like where... We think that to be spiritual, we can't have 
things and we should dress in like robes and we should be barefoot and all of this sort of stuff. And it's just not that. The idea of non-attachment is not that you can't own anything. It's that things can't own you. Like if you go to the forest and you give up all your worldly possessions and attempt for non-attachment, but you miss them, they own you. You're attached to them, whether you have them in the material world or not. If they're dragging energy out of you because you're thinking about them and missing them, they own you and you're attached. Whereas Osho would say, like, take it or leave it. I've got the Rolls Royces. It's fun. Play in the material world. It's so fun here. You can enjoy and you can delight your senses, but the easy come, easy go, right? You could take the Rolls Royces off him tomorrow. He'd be the same human. It would be absolutely unaffected by that. And this is like that non-attachment in the material world. Like definitely love and value the material possessions. It's so nice to have them. I'm so grateful that I have a car and I'm so grateful that I have an iPhone and I'm so grateful that I have like nice clothes to wear and I like expensive fabrics and I like expensive shampoo for my hair and all this sort of stuff, right? But take it off me tomorrow. I'm still me, right? I'm not going to – it's not my identity. It's something that I can enjoy and appreciate and deeply appreciate. Mm. And there's nothing about non-attachment that says stop appreciating. It's kind of the opposite. It's just like love it and value it, mm. but don't go into a total – cycle of despair and it's gone yeah and 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 like you said you know I think in the class one of our classes you mentioned even you know coffee um sugar <laughs> yeah like, I mean coffee coffee owns me I think yeah I did say that I shared that like because there's I have my one coffee a day and for the couple of hours leading up to it I think about it so coffee owns my mornings like cigarettes own a smoker alcohol mm. owns an alcoholic but we're all owned some of us are owned by like less socially acceptable things like heroin might own someone and some of us are owned by really socially acceptable things like praise mm. praise owns a people pleaser yeah right so this non-attachment is just whatever owns us we need to look at that yeah. right this idea of um like productivity owned me for a good while until I could see that I was really owned by that mm. so it's it's these things and they're they're much harder to spot right than 93 Rolls Royces and this was yeah. Osho's point with that he was yeah. trying and it was just so misunderstood people couldn't see past the cars um but this was his point with that like we're all owned by something mm. right some of us are owned by likes on social media and we think about it and we're driven by it. And yeah, there's just, it's those more insidious things that we're attached to that are so much more important to look at than the car or the clothes or, yeah, you know. Yeah. And that awareness, like you, like you said earlier that, you know, okay, so let's just say, we decide, okay, I'm not going to have the coffee. I'm not going to have, I am not going to have the coffee. And that's all we think about. I am not going to have a coffee. It's still owning us. The coffee own, it's owned, it owns us even more, right? Yeah, yeah. Or someone that makes an identity. And I've seen this um, a lot 
in the spiritual world, someone that makes an identity about having no possessions. Yes. And they need people to notice it and it needs to be visible on them. It needs it like that's owning, they're owned by that. They're completely attached yep. to people understanding that version of them. That's not non-attachment yeah. in it's, any way. Yep, absolutely. Spiritual ego is such a thing. It is such a thing to watch out for for those of those of us on a spiritual path. The spiritual ego, you know, the ego can be so sneaky. Oh my um, gosh, it's so sneaky! <laughs> it's, it's so crazy. clever, right? It's yeah. so clever. We have to appreciate it because all it wants is for us to stay noticeable and liked and safe in the group. So it was just find the most clever ways um, to do that. But the spiritual ego, like I was. Um, vegan for a long time and I was the really annoying kind of vegan yes. um and I had an aha moment with that one day where I'm like so the idea of like veganism is coming from that non-violence uh himza and yoga and I was like this status mm. of being vegan is making me so violent in my thoughts mm. like I have such violent judgment of people that aren't the same as me right now mm that this is the opposite. It's become the opposite of nonviolence for me. I was yeah. in such judgment of other people um, and putting such a distance between me and others and me and a hierarchy in my mind that I was better. I yeah. was better than other people. Like that sort of stuff is really like so much that inner work is really what the spiritual path is it's not about yeah. the labels that you're able to flash at people like I'm a vegan and I'm this and I'm that and it's not about that it's about what's happening on the inside of you and why you need those yes um and this is the non-attachment part as well yeah 100 percent. and and also that you know when you you were talking about uh earlier on you're talking about you know, being in the forest and not, you know, just having given everything out, you're still you, right? And mm -hmm. and it's kind of learning to distinguish between the ego, which is trying to keep us safe in whatever ways it feels like it needs to keep us safe, whether it's whether we're keeping everybody else happy or saying yes to everything or mm -hmm. that attachment, it, being able to start to distinguish between that not actually being us. <laughs> yeah. And who we really are isn't is not all of that it's the bit that doesn't change right could you it's that part that? yeah yeah it's that part that I was sharing the 40 days 40 nights program because we do a lot of work on all these different parts to ourselves. we give a lot of labels to different parts of ourselves. like some of them you know we're using old Freudian terminology of the id and the ego and the super ego so the id being like that impulsive toddler like part of us that just wants what it wants it wants to eat the whole cake it wants to have the cigarettes it doesn't care and then the ego being that the part that's mitigated we're like no 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 we'll have one piece because people are watching um <laughs> and then the super ego being like that that um conscience that berates us it's just like oh my gosh you're the worst I can't believe you want to have you had the cake we weren't going to have the cake you're such a fat you know blah 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 so those parts of us and then we talk about all these different other parts like the shadow part of ourselves from Jung saying the shadow is the parts of ourselves that are repressed, the parts we weren't allowed to express, the things that irritate us in other people, right? So if we grew up and 
our parents had a wound or maybe they just inherited this idea that um, sexuality was something that should be very, very covered up, which was just not to be spoken about. It wasn't to be displayed in any way. And so you grew up with that, right? And there's this part of ours, like we're whole, we're whole when we come here. And then we start to notice what's allowed, what's not allowed. And what is allowed is, okay, repressed sexuality is allowed. I'll put my sexuality into the shadow behind me. So then we grow up like this because that's safe. And then we start to see a woman that's just like confident in her sexuality and we hate her. We are triggered out of our minds by her. And we're like, she's disgusting. She's a whore. Like whatever it is we're casting judgment at, it's because there's that in our shadow that's like, and the internal thing that's happening is that was never allowed to be shown. How mm. how has she survived? Mm. Because I wasn't allowed to be that. Mm. So that's so unfair that she's mm. allowed to be that, right? And so we have we talk about the shadow and we talk about like the ego being the things that are allowed and the shadow being the things that aren't allowed, right? Mm. And we we use so many models in forty days and forty nights to look at all the different parts of ourselves. We use the internal family systems model where like we've got a manager that's like you know managing our day to day then we have an exiled part of ourselves that's not allowed to be felt and we have firefighters that rush in and you know that might be like drinking smoking sex whatever it is to stop us feeling feelings so anyway we go through this whole process in 40 days 40 nights where we're like looking at all these parts to us and then towards the end of the program we're like underneath all of that though underneath all of that what came in when you're a newborn and like the, you know, the way we all look at newborns and it comes out of all of our mouths. They're like, isn't she perfect? We say this all the time about newborns. We can't help it. We're like, look how perfect they are. We get emotional and we're so moved by their perfection. And what we're responding to there, what we're seeing is that part of us the whole self before we fracture into different parts of what's allowed to be seen what's not allowed what's the ego what's the shadow what's repressed what's elevated we're just seeing this perfection mm. this perfection right it's why we get so emotional when we look at these tiny brand new like little bits of life like that was us mm. and that's still behind all of these parts right that's yeah. self that yeah. whole self that's there. And this is really, the spiritual work is really that journey back to that perfect self. That's like, and this is why you can read all those things like yoga things or spiritual things and you're already perfect. You're already perfect. And that's, that's there. It just got cloudy with parts for a bit. And we can understand the parts and we can look at the parts and say, I see why you were there and you can go now. And I see what you were doing and you were trying to keep me safe, but I don't need to hold that anymore. And we just eventually, we just work on coming back to this perfect, perfect, perfect self that's sitting behind there. And the self is so unattached to the clothes and the praise and like any of that because the self's already it's just perfect. Like this is this term self-realized, right? We've realized mm. there's a self behind all of those parts. And that that self is different from the ego because it's not scared. Mm. The ego is scared. 
Right, that's its mechanism. It runs on fear, fear of being rejected, fear of being abandoned, and will behave in ways to avoid that. The self doesn't have that, right? Like, look at a newborn. They cry all night. Like, they're not mitigating their behavior to make other people happy. Yeah. Until, until, and we learn fast, until we learn how to do that, and then we start to fracture into pieces. So this journey is coming back to that. And that's what's behind the ego, right? So the self doesn't care if you have 10,000 Rolls Royces or if you don't have any. And the Fun self, to play with. Yeah. But. And the self doesn't care whether you've got the body of a 20-year-old or the body of an 80-year-old. <laughs> Your self is so unattached <laughs> to that, right? The self doesn't yeah. care if you put on weight or if yeah. you're like, Yeah. The ego cares so much yeah. and like depending on how much of your um, ego is built around like looks or body size or whether you've got wrinkles or whether you don't, like, yeah, yeah the ego can really care. Absolutely. Really care. And there's one just before we, we finish up, Beck, there's one goddess Um when you were talking about the shadow, mm -hmm. um, there's a goddess, and I've got her name up here, Damavati, is that right? Damavati. Damavati, yep. who, who kind of, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, represents all the things that we don't want to look at. That is exactly Damavati. So she's just, she's even like this rarely known goddess, which I think just enhances her message. Okay, so she's not the big exciting ones like Kali and Lakshmi and um, Dumavati is a widow and she's, you know, the other goddesses are beautiful. Like Lakshmi's got this golden skin and she's covered in jewels or Kali's terrifying to look at. Dumavati's kind of just, she's ugly to look at mm. on purpose, right? And she's the representation of all the things we turn away from like aging she's a widow she's sitting in a chariot but has no horses attached to it so it's a representation of like this is going nowhere mm. it's um you know she's dark and dusty and she's just nothing to look at she's a homeless person right mm. she's poverty she's war she's the things we turn our heads from because we're like I don't feel like looking at that and then but there's power and I've got goosebumps all over my body, there's power in Dumavati, right? So when we keep turning away, so I think when I talked about Dumavati in class once, I gave the example of graying hair, right? And I haven't been able to embrace this yet, and you have really beautifully, but like the amount of energy it takes to fight what's coming like the amount of cost involved with covering up gray hairs and the amount of like attachment um energy that there is um and this can go for anything for any kind of aging right like it's inevitable it's inevitable mm. it's coming at us mm. and when we turn and face whatever the thing is right so demavity might be a representation of gray hair right we don't want to look at it we're going to turn away from it. We're going to put all of our effort into not doing it. It might be wrinkles, uh, you know, whatever it is. When we're actually able to turn and face and be like, I'm going to step into this. 
I'm going to embrace this thing that maybe I once thought was ugly or scary or my ego was so terrified of. I'm going to, you just, you embody her power, right? Mm. And then I look at women that have embraced their gray hair. Like I was just talking to you about your hair before. It's my favorite hair in the world, your hair. <laughs> um, seriously, there is this very interesting, almost palpable power that sits in it. Like there's something that you can feel with someone that's not turning away from this stuff anymore, mm. right? And yeah. you give up, you just give up the attachment to fighting and you give up the attachment to hiding and someone that just steps into it, like embraces and embodies this Dumabati energy, that it feels so strong and powerful to be around. Mm. And look, from personal experience, it's such a relief. Yeah, right? It's such a relief, you know, because before, because I did dye my hair for a long time and um, and I felt like in, in the career that I was in, you kind of had to. Mm. That's, that's what I felt unbelievable because, you know, and I, I sort of finished my operatic career 10 years ago there were no, I mean, there was one, one singer, female singer with gray hair that I knew, right? Um, and I always felt like in hiding it, there was something, therefore I was indicating to myself that there was something to be ashamed of. Yeah. Um, and Damavati, when you talked about her in the class, I was like, oh, that's what stepped in was just actually going, you know what? I'm not afraid of this anymore. I'm not oh. afraid. To... And it was it was such a liberating, is such a liberating experience. And I remember the feeling of when I was dyeing my hair and sitting on a bus and thinking, oh, God, are people going to be able to see the white line? And, you know, <laughs> oh, my God. I must have experienced But that's just it, right? Like the amount of attachment that <laughs> it pulls your energy into a touch like that. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Beck, once you, again. Oh, sorry, Beck, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I feel like Dumavati, she's the she's the goddess that we want to face, like, in midlife, I think. And especially for women, for men as well, but women have more cultural and social conditioning put upon them for fighting ageing. Like, mm. it just is the case. And then Dumavati is that kind of step into, and like you said, just give, just turn and face the fear. I'm going to turn and I'm going to look into the eyes of this scary thing that I've been looking away from for so long. Yeah. And it's things like any, I love watching this journey with women and they, they stop wearing makeup and um, start wearing really comfortable clothing and this crone kind of era, it just, it's, and the people pleasing stops. Mm. and the running around bending over backwards like that role of the maiden in society like where you look pretty and do all the things mm. and make people happy and make people comfortable and like play all the roles Dumavati is like this transition of just like mm, yeah. I'm good I'm powerful enough as I am and yeah oh it's yeah. so amazing and that that sense you know a lot of a lot of people I think fear becoming invisible 
when they Absolutely. are no longer sort of considered beautiful in that youthful, physical kind of beautiful way. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I've been watching that. I've been watching myself as I become a bit invisible to people. Um, and that's, and I'm talking walking, you know, walking down the street. Mm-hmm. And where, where, when my body was younger and more youthful and what we might consider more beautiful, there was, there was a, people noticed and you noticed that people noticed, whether you're aware of it or not. Yeah. And now I sort of feel this internal chuckle. It's like this internal chuckle. Oh, that person eh, didn't even see me. And I'm totally fine with that. <laughs> you know, it's a really interesting thing to observe in yourself. Um, the the in the past where there may be a, a there may have been a bit of a discomfort around it. Um, mm-hmm. And when there's not, it's just it it almost just becomes funny, <laughs> which is very yeah. helpful. I think humor is a very helpful thing to have as we age. <laughs> Humor is an important thing. But do you know what's so interesting? I was just thinking about this. Um, I was having a conversation with my daughter just yesterday, literally yesterday, and she's seven. And um, we were talking about superpowers. And she said, my superpower would be able to fly. But if I got to choose two, I'd be able to be, I'd become invisible. And I remember as a kid thinking, how cool would it be to become invisible? It'd be so cool. And I said, what would you do if um, you were invisible? And she's like, I would play jokes on people and this sort of stuff. And I was thinking about it myself because the similar kind of thing, like becoming a mother, it's really interesting because you go from being hyper visible when you're pregnant and public mm. property and mm. people like to comment and touch and you're everybody's, your body is everybody's business, right? <laughs> right. And then you go into motherhood and you're a little bit visible when you have the newborn, right? Everyone's interested. People want to see that perfection that we just talked about. They want to look at it. They want to like, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see, but then um, the invisibility that comes when your kids are older is really interesting. But also to me, I've found it really um, relaxing. It's really relaxing to be able to walk down the street because I remember as like a 19, 20, like maybe even up to like early 30s, um, if I was walking alone down the street and you'd just be, you don't even realise how much hypervigilance you have mm-hmm. until it's gone of like, yeah. oh, there's a group of men. I'm just going to cross here. I'm just going to go into that shop. That man's been behind me for a little while now. Yeah. I'm just going to, and you don't even, you're not even conscious that you're making these millions of calculations all the time until they go away. Mm. I've only noticed since they've gone away, like just walk down the street and like walk past and like you said, walk past a group of men and I'm like, they didn't even see. <laughs> it's like you weren't um, even there. <laughs> <laughs> My dear mum saying to me the same thing. She said, Sal, when I became invisible, it was such a relief. <laughs> So maybe we all get our childhood wish, right? Like yeah, maybe, maybe I we def- do. I definitely wish to be invisible as a kid. And here we are. Oh, Beck, this has been another wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank um, you, Sal. We never quite know where they're going to go. We have an idea of where they're going to start. <laughs> but I love that we we never know where they're going to go. Um mm-hmm. And it's just such a joy, Beck. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, really. 
And our beautiful listeners and watchers, thank you as well once again for being part of these conversations that are so common in our humanity. Like we're so, they bring out the the commonness of our humanity, don't they? <laughs> um, yeah, all the things where we're all like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. And I look forward to speaking with you or seeing you over the waves next time. Bye.